Good morning. My name is Chris Roberts, and I'm the Minister of Pastoral Care. And I have our scripture this morning. It's coming from Luke 23, selected verses 32 through 47. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him. The soldiers also mocked him. One of the criminals who was hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We thank you, Chris, for our scripture lesson. And once again, we say thank you to our praise band who always does an <clears throat> awesome job for us. <laughs> um, be sure to put on your... We've been really blessed with, with music today. Uh, we've had um, the cantata, the Easter cantata done by our choir at the early service. And, of course, this week we have several special events happening. And on Friday night... Our worship band will be leading the Good Friday service here at 7 o'clock in this building. So I make plans to, to come and hear that and be a part of that service. It's always a true blessing. As well as um, we have a Living Lord's Supper, which some of uh, you guys out there are going to be a part of on Thursday night. And uh, they'll be having up here on stage. And that's a, another event to come to, to just as we walk through these uh, this week of Holy Week and remember the events that took place that led to the glory of Easter. As we prepare to go into this moment of looking at the scripture and what it says for us today, I want to invite you to join me in a moment of prayer as we center ourselves. God, we, we read this story that we have read hundreds of times before. Many of us have grown up hearing it. We, we know it. And yet, God, something, each time we hear it, speaks to us touches us. It never gets old. It is life to us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you open our hearts and our minds and our very lives to hearing it again, fresh and new, as if for the very first time. We might realize the impact, be changed by it, be moved by it, to be your people. So come, Holy Spirit, lead us in this moment together. Open us, bless us, Minister to us in this place through the power of your word. May you be glorified in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
During the season of Lent, our congregation has been in a series of sermons where we've been exploring and journeying through the Gospel of Luke. We've been calling this Gospel the Gospel of the Nobodies because more than any of the other Gospels that you have, Luke is trying to point out Jesus' concern for the nobodies of the world. Almost every page that you read in his Gospel, you find Jesus reaching out, ministering to the outcast, the marginalized, the, uh, the forgotten, the unloved, the unwanted the hopeless. And he tries to help them to see that you're not a nobody in God's eyes. You're a somebody in God's eyes. God cares about you. You matter to God. And then we read how those who were considered to be the somebodies of the world, um, just, they don't get this. They, they, they just can't, their eyes are blinded to this. They're the ones that are blind to the truth. They just can't seem to recognize who Jesus really is. And so they begin to be exposed as being the real nobodies. You see this over and over again in Luke's gospel. You see this contrast again in the story that we have before us today from his gospel. This account of the crucifixion. We read how Jesus turns to a thief hanging next to him on a cross, a true nobody, and he offers him eternal life, paradise. But to the people around him who should have known who he really is, they, they're completely blind to it. And so they end up mocking him and taunting him crucifying him. Well, today we have celebrated the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, and we move now to Jesus' passion, his death upon the cross. Jesus' crucifixion was really the climax of everything that's been leading up. From the beginning of the gospel, it climaxes in this event of the crucifixion. This is Jesus' defining moment, but it's not just his defining moment. For anybody who seeks to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it is also our defining moment, too. And many of you um, are familiar with this. You know that on that cross, Jesus uttered seven words or seven different statements. These are often referred to as the seven last words of Jesus or the seven last words from the cross. And uh, three of these sayings from the cross actually came from the Gospel of Luke. In fact, they're only found in Luke's Gospel. And these three sayings are really going to form the outline of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, The first one is, um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. And, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Those are the three things. So we're going to look at the first one this morning. Um, The first one, these are words that he spoke to those who were crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I just have to remind you... Crucifixion, it's something that we really can't wrap our minds around today because it was just a horrible, horrible form of death. I mean, it had been practiced long before the Romans came on the scene, but the Romans had perfected it to a form of capital punishment that they had perfected it so that it would last as long as humanly possible and deliver as much pain as humanly possible. Now, the pain of a crucifixion was beyond excruciating. Um, we have... Um, Historical records indicating that there were, if you did it just right, they claimed you could make a human being last three days as they died on the cross. Jesus only lasted six hours. And you have a picture that I put up here of an artist's rendition of the different forms of crucifixion that the Romans practiced as their capital punishment. And uh, you had the choice of either pushing up on your feet uh, and your legs so that you could breathe better, uh, but when the pain became too great in your feet or in your legs, they would lower themselves 
and hang from their arms, which made it more difficult to breathe. And, of course, then you had the pain of the, the wrist where the spikes had been put through. And so it was, it was a form of torture that they had developed. I mean, no matter what position that you were in, you were experiencing excruciating pain. And as one final act of, um, you know, just degradation um, and humility, the victims were crucified naked to take away any last dignity that they possibly had. Uh, crucifixions were done outside the entrance of the city so that whoever came in or out of the city had to see it. It was right there in their face. This was their way of saying to all the people who entered the city of Jerusalem that this is what will happen to you if you defy the Roman government. The victims were normally three feet off the ground. A lot of our movies, they show them way up in the air, but uh, crucifixion, typically, the, the victim was about three feet off the ground, so they would have been close uh, for them to see. They're you know, just almost at eye level, and, and um, you could hear what they had to say. Those who came to witness the crucifixion of Jesus that day would have been very close to him. They could have reached out and touched him if they wanted to, and certainly they could hear the words that he spoke. And as he's hanging on this cross, it says... Jesus said to the people that are there, he lifts his eyes up and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This has to be one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. Jesus is hanging on a cross, and he's praying for God to forgive the people who have mocked him, spit upon him, crucified, nailed him to that cross, plotted for his death. He's praying that God might forgive them. It's just... An unbelievable thing that we see going on here. And it's really ironic that one of the things that actually put Jesus on that cross was the fact that he was regularly forgiving people of their sins. This just made the uh, religious leaders of his day just go ballistic. They said, who are you to think that you have the authority to forgive sins? Who but God can do that? Blasphemy, blasphemy. And yet here he is once again, praying and asking for God to forgive these people of their sins. Just unbelievable act of, of grace that we see going on here. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, the Romans knew exactly what they were doing. <clears throat> they were putting to death a person that they believed was claiming to be a king, a king of the Jews against Rome. But Jesus knew that they were simply following their orders. They did this all the time. And if they really knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't be doing this. The religious leaders who saw Jesus as a threat, he knew that if they really understood who he was, they wouldn't be doing this either. And so he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't understand what they're doing. And this, this act upon the cross that he does, it, it, it's really demonstrating, these words are demonstrating what he's actually doing what this cross is all about. We know the cross is about redemption. It's about forgiveness. Because uh, Jesus is coming before God, like the high priest, the New Testament says. He's uh, praying on our behalf, on behalf of all of humanity, that God might forgive us and give us his mercy and his grace. He's coming before God as a sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. He's seeking to atone for the sins of all of humanity, that God again might forgive us. This is what the cross is about. He's offering self, himself so that we might be forgiven. And it's interesting that when Luke tells us that he says, Father, forgive them, he's really not clear who the them is. I mean, of course we know he's talking about those who have uh, put him on that cross. 
uh, he, it's actually referring, we know, to uh, the crowds who are around him that are jeering and mocking him and spitting on him. He's, he's certainly talking about the uh, soldiers. He's talking about the religious leaders who plotted his death. He's, he's talking about the two thieves on the cross. But I think it's more than that. It's not just for them. Uh, this is a, a prayer that echoes down through all of eternity, throughout all history. It's as if Jesus is hanging on that cross and he's peering across through history, looking down at us in this very place and saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't understand what they're doing. This prayer is for you. It's for me, for all of us. And I think that's something that we need to remember. We need to reflect upon, because I hear people saying all the time, you know, I, I hear you talking about how wonderful God's grace is, how God has the power to forgive us of our sins, and I believe that with my head, but I just can't feel it with my heart. I just can't believe that God would be able to forgive me of the things that I've done. But when you remember that Jesus prayed this prayer for people who were spitting upon him, mocking him, people who had nailed him to the cross, who plotted his death, He's praying this for them. Can you not believe that he would be praying that same prayer for you? I mean, can there be anything that you have ever done that even comes close to what those people did to Jesus? And yet he prays, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. In this prayer, Jesus is praying for your forgiveness. Whatever sin, whatever guilt or shame that you may have of something that's happened in your life, Jesus is offering you his grace. God's mercy, God's forgiveness. This is what the message of the cross is all about. Forgiveness so that we can have a new beginning. Well, the psalmist says it this way. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far removes our transgressions from us. This is what God does for us. This is why every time we gather here to celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion, you will hear those words, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Because Jesus prays for our forgiveness upon that cross. But his prayer on the cross was not just um, about forgiving those who had plotted his death and crucified him. It's not just about forgiving us. This was actually Jesus' way of modeling for us what it means to be one of his disciples. Throughout his life, throughout his ministry, Jesus tried to show us in countless ways. He lived and modeled a life of mercy, a life of grace, a life of forgiveness. We, we see this throughout his life, and he taught his disciples that this is the way that leads to life and how we're meant to live. He said to his disciples, you're not meant just to forgive people seven times as the law requires, but seven times seven if that's what it takes. When people strike you on one side of your cheek, you're to turn the other side of the cheek. You are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and have wronged you. When they ask him, Lord, how do we pray? He said, like this, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is what Jesus taught. And so Jesus, he talked about forgiveness a lot. <laughs> when you read his story, he's always talking about this. He's always modeling it because he knew that part of being a human being, our human nature is that we're going to end up hurting one another. We say things, we do things, we don't do things that disappoint and hurt one another. And we do that on a daily basis. And so you cannot live, you cannot have any kind of relationship without being willing to forgive one another. You can't stay married if you don't learn how to forgive one another regularly. 
You can't uh, have a college roommate for very long if you don't learn how to forgive one another. You can't work with somebody in business if you don't learn how to forgive one another. You can't maintain friendships if you don't learn how to forgive one another regularly. We can't uh, be that light into our community and the world around us and experience the blessings of being a Christian community here within the church if we don't learn how to forgive one another on a regular basis. Forgiveness is really our only hope, ultimately, for peace, for a shared existence. You think about all these things that are happening in our world today, war and violence. Underneath all of that seems to be this unwillingness to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is really our hope. And Jesus knew this. Often we misunderstand, I think, what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not saying that what the other person has done is okay. It's not just dismissing it. Forgiveness is choosing not to hold that against that other person anymore. It's choosing to let go of that so that we are not controlled and destroyed by the bitterness and the resentment and whatever we're holding against that person. That we're able to be set free from that. And that creates the possibility for a future together, a new future. You say, well, you don't know what that other person did to me. What that other person did to me was really bad. Can you imagine going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I can't forgive this other person because what they did to me was so bad. And Jesus says, really? <laughs> I mean, tell me, let's, let's talk about what that person did to you that was so bad that you can't forgive them. Let's talk about that. <laughs> There's an anonymous saying that... Um, it's very popular. You've seen it before, perhaps, but it's one of a beautiful thing. The author is unknown, but it says, the first to apologize is the bravest. The first to forgive is the strongest. The first to forget is the happiest. How true that is. Listen, God knows that this is hard for us. It's hard. That's why God sent us his Holy Spirit to help us to enable us to do what we cannot do on our own sometimes. So whoever it is that you are struggling with to forgive, whether they're living or they're not, whoever that may be, if you will go to the one who prayed upon the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He will help you get to that place in your life where you're able to forgive, to be set free. It may take years of praying that <laughs> over daily, but eventually, he can help you get to that place where you're set free and you forgive. All right, let's move on to the second statement that Jesus gives. All four Gospels talk about how there were two criminals that were crucified next to Jesus. And yet, they differ in how they describe who these men were. <clears throat> Some of the Gospels talk about them being a thief, like a bandit. Others refer to them as being a rebel uh, kind of person that was uh, a rebel against the government or against the authorities there that murdered people. Luke actually gives, he uses a different word to describe these, these two men that were crucified next to Jesus. He uses the Greek word kagorgos, which means uh, evildoers or doers of evil. And so these were men who had done evil things. They had done bad things, terrible things. And um, so you have these two men being crucified next to Jesus who everybody would have seen as being evildoers, uh, terrible nobodies uh, of society, outcasts. And they did this intentionally. <laughs> they, they crucified these men with Jesus because they wanted to send a message that Jesus is just like them. He's a rebel. 
He's an he's a evildoer. He's a nobody. But as Jesus hangs there between these two nobodies, who emerges as the somebody? The man in the middle, right? It's Jesus. One of these men begins to join the taunts of the crowd against Jesus. Now, you have to understand this. Crucifixion, it was hard enough just to breathe, much less to talk. And yet this man spends his dying breath taunting Jesus. He says to him, if, if you really are the king of the Jews, the Messiah like they say you are, then save yourself. Prove who you are by saving yourself. And you have to wonder, why? <laughs> why does a man who's being crucified begin to mock another man who's being crucified? I mean, who does that? Why would he be doing this? Well, why, do, why does anybody mock another human being? Why do we bully others? Why do we tease others? Why do we make fun of others? Because it makes us feel better than them somehow. If I tease you, then I feel better about myself. This guy was probably a bully all of his life. He's filled with deep-seated anger and resentment, whatever it is, just anger within him, evil, and it's just, it's just coming out of him. Even in his dying breath, he's spewing evil, hurtful, ugly things. Uh, you're a nobody, just like they say. And it's truly a tragic scene. I mean, here he is hanging three feet, three feet from the Savior of the world, and he's hurling these insults. He's three feet from one who could deliver him and offer him eternal life. He's three feet from the one who could redeem him, give him the second chance. He's three feet from God incarnate, and he's too blind to see it. Such anger and hate within him. Throughout Luke's gospel, you see this contrast between the nobodies and the somebodies. And here, even in this picture, you're seeing it. You've got this guy on the cross. He's being crucified. He still thinks he's a somebody. And then you have the other person hanging next to Jesus. Luke tells us that he says to Jesus, he says at this moment, he says, do not, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. It's amazing about all these people that are around Jesus. This guy's the only one who sees it. This man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. Now, we don't know if this man knew Jesus prior to this, other than what he's witnessing, what's happening as Jesus is crucified and he's suffering there, hanging on that cross. He's, he's uh, witnessed the Roman soldiers uh, crucify him and put a crown on his head. He's witnessed the crowd jeering and mocking him. He's listened to Jesus' response to that and the words that he spoke. And this has given him just a little faith, enough faith to see something in Jesus that none of the others seem to be able to see. And so he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man didn't know what we proclaim in our creeds about Jesus. He didn't know the things we know about Jesus. He didn't have the kind of faith we had. All he knew was that he was dying and that Jesus might be his only hope. And so he prays, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And this is how Jesus responds to his faith. He says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
There's two things I want you to know about this statement. First of all, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Some people get confused about this or are confused about it because we see contrasting things in the gospel. Like in Paul's letters, there's a couple of places where Paul says that on the last day when the Christ returns, um, the trumpets will sound, the archangels will shout, and those who have died in, in Christ will rise. And it leaves you wondering, well, then what's happened to all those people who have died years after that? <laughs> You know, uh, if, if, if we rise, we, we come, we rise on the day that uh, Christ comes back, then what's happened to everybody who's died prior to that? What, what happens to us when we die? And what scholars have really come to conclusion about this is that Paul really wasn't sure about this himself, as we're not. You know, you, we're not up in heaven. We don't know. But uh, Paul really wasn't sure about this, and this is why he contradicts himself in other places in, the, in the, his letters. But uh, Paul really makes it clear that he is expecting that Jesus is going to come back very shortly in his lifetime. He's expecting him to come any day. And so when he's writing his letters, he's not thinking thousands of years before Jesus comes. He's writing in the context of we're looking for Jesus to come back any day now. And so when I read that, it helps us to understand, understand why he says what he does. But when you really want to know what, this, what happens to us when we die, I just go to Jesus' words here. And I see how Jesus turns to a thief that's on the cross dying next to him, and he says, today... Today you will be with me in paradise. Not a thousand years from now, but today. And then the second thing I want you to notice about this statement is he says, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, the Greek word that Luke uses here is the same word that's used to describe the king's garden. It's a private garden that the king had where he and his closest friends and his family could go to. It was an immaculate, a beautiful place. So what Jesus seems to be saying to this thief on the cross was that today you're going to be with me in the king's garden in my father's house. And it's a place that its beauty is beyond anything you can possibly imagine. It's just beyond. It's like paradise. This is actually what we claim when we have a funeral service. We say that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And the most beautiful places that you've experienced here in our lifetime on this earth they just pale in comparison. They're a dim reflection of the majesty and the beauty that God has in store for those who trust in him and return to him. It's paradise. The crowd was hurling these insults at Jesus. And they're telling him, save yourself, Jesus. Prove who you are. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to save myself. But to that one who's showing a little bit of faith here, I'm going to save him. And I'm going to save you, those of us here. You see, all you have to do to be saved by Jesus is just to pray this prayer that the thief prays. Father, Lord, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all it takes. Praying that prayer with faith. This leads us to the last statement Jesus makes on the cross. William Barclay, who's a New Testament commentator, says that Jewish mothers in that day and time, and some of them still do this, they teach their children a bedtime prayer that they say every night. And uh, it's sort of like the bedtime prayer that we teach our children. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord 
uh, take me out of there. We, some of us changed that last part because we don't want our kids going to bed thinking they're going to die. <clears throat> but uh, we make that prayer, you know, if I die before I wake, the Lord, my soul to take. Uh, we, most of us grew up with that kind of prayer. But uh, this prayer is the prayer that the Jewish mothers taught their children to pray every night, he said, comes from Psalm 31, verse 5. And it says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So children are taught to pray every night. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Luke tells us that Mary was there standing um, right before Jesus at the cross. And so she could hear Jesus praying the prayer that she taught him to pray as a child. It's a simple prayer. You can memorize it. You can say it in one breath. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Would you say that with me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's say that again. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When you're afraid, when you're facing those uncertain moments of life and challenges, this is a prayer you can simply pray. Father, in thy hands I commit my spirit. When you're facing death or the death of a loved one, this is a prayer you can pray for them, for yourself. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Before you go to bed every night, or when you wake up every day and you, to face what's ahead of you, you can make this your prayer. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Something happens when we uh, wholly surrender our lives to God and, and trust that God has us in his hands no matter what happens. We're able to face whatever comes. We're able to live unafraid because we've entrusted our lives to God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Today, we're being encouraged to entrust our lives to Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus was willing to forgive those who spit upon him, mocked him, plotted his death, nailed him to a cross, knowing that he was willing to turn to a thief to forgive him and offer him paradise, knowing that all that he had taught, all that he had said, his willingness, his power and ability to forgive sins, his, his promise of eternal life, all of that was vindicated when three days later he rose from the dead, showing us that it's all true. We can entrust our lives to him. So today, as we know all of that, if you did it for others, he'll do it for you. So let us entrust our spirits. Let us entrust our very lives to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, as we reflect upon your words upon the cross, help us, God, to hear them for ourselves today, for our lives. Help us to, to put into practice what you try to show us by forgiving others. As we trust in your ability to forgive our own sins, God, help us to lift up the nobodies around us. Help us to help them to come to know you and to see themselves as somebody in your eyes loved by you. We pray that you would remember us when you come into your kingdom. Deliver us to paradise on that day. For truly, O oh Lord, into your hands we commit our spirits and we commit every moment of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.